Well, a little while back, I finished a uh, biography on Patrick Henry, and it was by an excellent, excellent biographer by the name of Thomas Kidd. If you like history, get a book on Thomas or about, or written by Thomas Kidd. Shortly after reading the biography, I was privileged to sit in on a lecture that he gave at Patrick Henry College in Virginia via the internet for about an hour. As As I listened to Thomas Kidd explain his biography on a great historical character of our, of our country. And I thought to myself as I listened to kids speak on Henry that there's nothing quite like listening to the author of a book explain his own book. You can read a book and think, well, what is he trying to say? But if you could get the author to actually sit down with you within the book, uh, there's, there's just nothing like it. You really get a grasp of how the book is written. Well, let me propose a, a situation before you of a Bible study that you're having, perhaps. And Karen and I saw a Bible study taking place down in San Marco yesterday morning at the Maple Biscuit, which is kind of a neat little new restaurant down in San Marco. We would recommend it to you. Everything on a biscuit you can imagine. And there was seven or eight guys at a table out front uh, in this very, you know, kind of a high-end type neighborhood with their Bibles open, having a Bible study. We thought that was kind of cool. Imagine if Jesus kind of entered and sat down at the Bible study. Imagine a Bible study that Jesus taught his own book. All commentaries are dropped at that point. <laughs> um, the dis- discussion perhaps is at the minimum as you listen to the author of the book explain his book. Fascinating, isn't it? Uh, Such a scene took place a couple thousand years ago at the temple of Jerusalem in John chapter 7. As Jesus entered the temple and sat down, and I want you to go there, John chapter 7, verse 14, if you will. John chapter 7, verse 14, as Jesus actually teaches a Bible study... um, and it's interesting uh, how it kind of goes from there. I need, to, I need to pull back from the context of the temple moment that we're going to look at for a moment to give you an idea of the flow of the entire book of John because it's like no other book in, in, the, in the New Testament as far as the Gospels go. The majority of the book of John is surrounding the week of the Passion, which is the week before his crucifixion. John chapter 7 is about six months before the Passover week. It happened in September, October, this festival of booths or tabernacles that Jesus went to, and no longer would he be up in Galilee. Galilee was finished for him. He was done. He'll make one trip out of John up in Caesarea Philippi, but no longer in Galilee. The majority of the book, from chapter 7 to the end, is down in Judea, down in Jerusalem, down in the heart of Judaism. The very place that they're plotting to kill him for all those months. Now I want you to picture the the sheer courage of Jesus Christ to walk into this area where he knew his death was imminent and knew that his death was being planned. If an assassination attempt against your life was being placed 
up in Chicago, my bet is that you'll not make any trips to Chicago. You'll stay away from it. But behold how much Jesus Christ loves you. That he would go into Jerusalem and into Judea six months before the event, knowing that there are men who wanted him dead, and that he would not stay away from his father's plan to save you and to save me. Go with me then, if you will, to the book of John chapter 7 and verse 14. So from now on, we're pretty much in Jerusalem, Judea area to the end of the Gospel of John. Verse 14 says this, About the middle of the feast, or festival, Tuesday, Wednesday, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now let that thought saturate you for a few moments. This was a city packed with over a million Jews. A very influential group of them wanted him dead. And then he shows up in public, walks up into the temple precincts, and among the colonnades begins to teach. That's amazing to me. That he would risk his life to teach us and to show us. It tells me of his love for you and I. It tells me of our need to be taught. And he teaches. And wouldn't you love to have been in that Bible study? Just, just put yourself there. See the sights and hear the, the noise of the temple. And if you will, smell the camel dung as they walk by. And sit there with him and imagine what he said. As he just took the scripture and began to unfold it to your hearts. There's no place to go at that time. There's no other thoughts. It's just drinking in what he said. I imagine he explained the festival and the booze of, of living just with God. He talked about the, the pillar of fire and the, the cloud by day and, and how nice that was to be air-conditioned in the hot desert. And he just broke it all open for them. And they just sat and listened as he taught. And he spoke like never a man had ever spoken or ever will again. His words were gold. It was precious. In this teaching scene, look at verse 15. The Jews, these were not the common Jews. These were the religious leaders who were sitting in that group listening. The Jews therefore marveled shocked, awed, and they said this, how has this man learning? He never went to our college. He never went to our seminary. He was not trained at the feet of the great Gamaliel. How does he know these things? How does he, he's never, he's never sat under us. How does he know? How can he teach these things? He's an ignorant Galilean carpenter's son. What does he know? Now, let me say at this point, I'm not against college education. I'm, I'm rather a bit for it. I just finished one. I'm happy to get past it. But give me a man whose heart is after Jesus Christ, rather than an educated man who can say the big, long words. This man 
knew how to speak to people's hearts. But I want you to notice they weren't shocked at the content of his message. It was his delivery that impressed them, which is always a problem with those who speak. Well, how was the sermon? Well, he delivered it this, he delivered it. What does it matter how he delivered it? What matters is the content of his message. And these Jews were like, whatever. Look at him speak. Hear how he does it. He sounds so learned. You're not listening to a word he says. But you really like the way he says it. Content is incredibly important and they missed the entire thing. Well, look at verse 16. Jesus doesn't ignore these murmurings in the crowd. He answered them saying this, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Whoa, that's pretty amazing to me. Here is Jesus Christ teaching, and he says this, My teaching is not mine. My teaching is from the one who sent me to you. I smiled as I read this last week because I thought of all the people who have teachings out there. You have the teachings of good men, John Piper. You have the teachings of uh, Max Licato. You have the teachings of, and they have their doctrine, and their teachings. Jesus claimed no such thing. Wow. Kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? His whole perspective was not to give you his doctrine or teaching. It was to give you exactly what came from God himself. Not his slant on it. Not his prejudice on it. And here's the Son of God saying this. How much more human instruments. He goes on. If anyone wills to do God's will, who, if anybody really wants to know, if in their heart they want to know something from God, notice he says, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Again, this is a humbling passage for any preacher or teacher who thinks that they have any authority at all. We have none. It is the authority of God himself. The best we can do is try to communicate it with as little as interference as possible. You know what white noise is, right? Static. I can't hear what you're saying because there's so much white noise. There was no white noise when Jesus taught. And as little of white noise as we as teachers and preachers can possibly give you, the better. Because you get it from Him. And then it's not the words of a man that are convincing you of truth. It's God Himself that's convincing you of the truth that you see in the book that's before you. You're a crazy group of people. Do you know that? You're a wildly crazy group of people. I think you're like me, but you're on steroids out there spiritually. You know? You take the grave truths that we preach and teach here and you just, and you don't believe it because I'm telling it to you. You believe it because you see it in Scripture and you know it to be true by, by first of all, the truth and then you see how it plays out in your life and your life is being transformed, isn't it? By God Himself. So this is no authority that any man has. This is the authority of God Almighty. 
And if you really want to know what God's, if you really, if you really want to know, he'll show you. The question is, do you want to know? Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority, this is what he's seeking. He's seeking his own glory. He wants applause. He wants you to pat him on the back and say, I like your teaching better than somebody else's teaching. To a man who's authentic, that's the last thing he wants to hear. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, in that person, there is no falsehood because all he sees himself as a conduit for the truth of Jesus Christ. That's all he wants to communicate. He wants you to see him, and seeing him, he would just as soon be completely invisible to you. Well, look at verse 19. By the way, verse 19 and beyond gets very personal. Jesus never avoided elephants in the room. You know what elephants in the room are, don't you? It's the thing that everybody knows there is there, but no one speaks about it. There's a huge elephant in the temple right now. He's so massive, he's knocking the colonnades over. He's so massive, he's getting in the way of the worshiper, and no one's talking about him. And Jesus takes a very innocent Bible study and, give, and becomes... Well, look what he does. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Now stop right there. He just got done saying that no man has authority. And what he says to these Jews is, you think Moses had authority. He gave you the law. And in fact, he did give you the law, but really God gave you the law. But you've forgotten God gave you the law because all you're thinking about is Moses. And because Moses gave you the law, he says, none of you keep the law. If you really had it right and you understood God gave you the law, you wouldn't do something in verse 20. Look at it. Look, well, 19. And yet none of you keeps the law. And then he asked the question. Don't, don't miss this moment. This is great. He looks at them and he says, Why do you want to kill me? So much for the seeker-friendly approach to Bible studies. So much for the, un, you know, the, the making sure everybody feels good. Nobody gets uncomfortable. This is incredibly uncomfortable. Elephants out of the bag. Dumbo shows up, and there he is. Ask yourself, why do you want to kill me? By the way, that question's still relevant today. For those who have never come to him, why don't, why don't you want me? Why do you want to kill me out of all thinking? Why do you want to kill me out of your life? Why do you want to eliminate my thoughts? It's an interesting thought. Look at verse 20. Notice the abuse that Jesus Christ takes at the hands of men. The crowd answers, You have a devil! You have a demon! Well, he, you know, Jesus makes them uncomfortable. He says, You have Demon, who is seeking to kill you? What abuse. What sinfulness in the heart of man to call God and to claim you have a demon. He didn't say, oh, you're crazy, you're out of mind. He said, you're demonic. Wow. 
Here's the sinless Son of God come down to reach out to mankind. And what does mankind do with His outstretched hand? You have a demon. Who wants to kill you? We have bluebirds attacking our house, and we don't know why. Uh, They started in the spring, fluttering the windows, and I thought, well, it must be a mating season thing. But mating season's moving on a long time, and these bluebirds are still attacking our house. They flutter at the window, they flutter at the window, and they've done it for months now, and the dog's so used to it, he doesn't get up off the couch and bark at him anymore. He just looks up, oh, there's the bluebird again. <laughs> tap, 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 tap. I think the worst thing is they, they mess on the window, you know, so I go clean it off, and next day, there it is again. You, you know what they're doing? They're, they're attacking their reflection. They see an enemy, and they attack it. How stupid is that? I mean, a bluebird must not be a smart bird. You don't see a mockingbird doing that. They're smarter. Attacking a reflection of themselves, beating a glass against their own selves. Are they hurting anything? No. They're wasting a lot of time and probably getting a headache as a result. These, These religious leaders aren't attacking and hurting Jesus Christ. They're attacking their own selves. Any man that opposes Christ is opposing his own self. Damaging his own life. Look at how gracious the answer of Jesus Christ back to them. Verse 21. Jesus answered and said, look, I did one work. And you all were just marveled at it. The work he was referring to is healing the crippled man months ago. They have been buzzing about it ever since. The year that he was up in Galilee, they kept talking about it. He's been gone a whole year now. And they couldn't stop talking about the lame man who danced in the courtyard, in the temple. He said, look, I did one work and you all marveled. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And because he gave you circumcision, you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If the eighth day after the male child's birth falls on the Sabbath, they still do it. They they do a work on the Sabbath day, violating their own thing about not working, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. And then he looks at them and says, you are angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. You cut a male child and circumcise that child on the Sabbath day just so Moses' law wouldn't be offended. And you're angry with me because I healed an entire man's body on the Sabbath? Do not judge by appearance, as Jesus says. Judge righteous judgment. Consider all the elements of the thing that's going on. You know, their issue wasn't defending Sabbath law or defending it. It was the hatred of Jesus Christ himself. Notice how gracious it is of Jesus to answer like that when he was called a demon. 
What a Savior we have. A couple things. You know, it's, it is possible to be really impressed with Jesus and yet never really believe in Him. They marveled at His teaching. They marveled at His miracles. And they stayed quite a bit away from Him. Because when you believe, you drink His blood and eat His flesh. When you, drink, when you believe, you take Him into your life and you lose yours for His. There are many people that are very impressed with Jesus Christ. The greatest moral teachings that have ever come down the pike are from Jesus Christ. And men have studied them for centuries, taking them in, believing on them, but never believing on Him. There's a difference. Possible to be impressed with Him, but as one man said, we impress from a distance but we are impacted up close. Number two. The questions that Jesus Christ asked and God asked are never because he wants to seek information. They are for our benefit. Do do you remember when Adam's, well, we weren't there, but remember reading about Adam sinning in the garden? And Adam and Eve's first reaction was to cover themselves and hide from God. And God walks through the garden and he says this, Adam, where are you? Did God not know where Adam was at that point? Exactly where he is. He want, and by the way, he's still saying that to lost humanity. Adam, where are you? Would you please recognize that you've sinned against me? So when Jesus asked the question, why do you want to kill me? Why do you... Go about. By the way, the Greek word for go about is the word meaning to plot a man's death. There are different murder charges. There are first degree murder, second degree murder. There's manslaughter. Well, what determines the person died? What determines the charge is the premeditation. There are sins and passions of the moment that people make terrible decisions. But when a man premeditates a murder, he plots and plans and makes allowances for it. It's the most hideous crime of murder, first degree. They were planning first degree murder. Why do you want to kill him? Good question. Only you know the answer to that. His questions are always for us, not for him. Number three, do you know you always find what you're looking for? I know that's not real profound, but it's true. You always find what you're looking for. So the question isn't what you find. The question is, what are you looking for? Oswald Chambers, in his speech on or talk on missionary goal, spoke this. In the natural life, we have ambitions and aims which alter as we develop. In the Christian life, the goal is given at the beginning. You ready? Our Lord Himself. 
We do not start with our idea of what the Christian life should be. We start with Christ. We end with Christ. Our aims in natural life continually alter as we develop. But development in the Christian life is an increasing manifestation of Jesus Christ. You always find what you're looking for. If you're looking for a Christianity to advance you, you come to the wrong gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ starts with him, ends with him. It's all about him. It's about the end of us and the beginning of him. It's not about us doing, performing, putting in this, putting in that. It's about what he has accomplished for us and now, based on that, wants to do in and through us. You always will find what you're looking for. If you want him at an arm's length, he will be at an arm's length. If you want to kill him, kill him. He won't stop you. He respects your free will too much. He loves you too much to violate that. If you want to open your heart to him, oh, you will know quickly. You will know very quickly. The question isn't him, it's you and I. 